Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. Tonight on The Readout. So do you think that because of your investigation, that is what's moved this needle with the media? Absolutely. Absolutely. There's no question. You look at the polling and right now, Donald Trump is seven points ahead of Joe Biden and trending upward. Joe Biden's trending downward. Another Republican says the quiet part out loud, brazenly admitting that his party's anti-Biden crusade is nothing more than a time-wasting political stunt to help Trump. Congressman Jamie Raskin joins me to respond. Plus, Ron DeSantis's problematic history with, well, history as governor, high school teacher, and author. Wait until you see some of the things he wrote in a little-noticed 2011 book on the founding fathers and President Obama. And later, a San Francisco journalist goes undercover to give us a rare behind-the-scenes look inside the Republican Party's anti-trans agenda. But we begin tonight with the return of the twice-impeached, criminally-indicted former president in a New York criminal courtroom today. It was Donald Trump's first appearance in this case, though he did so virtually from Florida, since he pleaded not guilty to 34 counts of falsifying business records last month in the hush money case involving adult film actress Stormy Daniels. Judge Juan Marchand brought Trump in with the sole purpose of trying to explain to the man who has a penchant for attacking people who displease him, especially those he's caught up in legal battles with, what he can and cannot do with the evidence his legal team has been provided as part of the discovery process. This means not taking trial evidence like records of witness interviews and grand jury testimony and blasting it out on his pretend Twitter to attack witnesses. The judge's protective order had already singled Trump out, saying he is only allowed to review certain sensitive material in the presence of his lawyers. The judge also warned Trump that failure to follow the rules could result in him being held in contempt. One of the witnesses in the case, former Trump attorney Michael Cohen, says he has little faith in his former boss. Quote, I have less than zero confidence that Donald will abide by any of the terms of the protective order. His anger toward the system that is holding him accountable is so severe he will not be able to control his actions. He is like a petulant child. And while Trump was getting ready for his court appearance, we were learning new details on another one of Trump's legal battles, the special counsel's investigation into classified documents found at Mar-a-Lago. The New York Times is reporting special counsel Jack Smith has subpoenaed records of Trump's foreign business deals spanning back to 2017 when he was first sworn into office. The focus is on records related to seven countries, including China and Saudi Arabia, The Times writes that investigators have cast a wider net than previously understood, even though it was unclear what the prosecutors were hoping to find. This comes as the Wall Street Journal claims that the special counsel is wrapping up its probe, having all but finished obtaining testimony and other evidence in the criminal investigation 
And that is according to people familiar with the matter. I'm joined now by Mary McCord, an MSNBC legal analyst and the former principal deputy assistant attorney general for the National Security Division of the DOJ and MSNBC Lisa, uh, legal analyst Lisa Rubin. And Lisa, I am going to start with you. You were in the courtroom, set the stage. I understand there were lots of large American flags. There were lots of large American flags, Joy, and that's because the former president was making his appearance by video conference. He was in Florida, we believe at Mar-a-Lago, with his attorney, Todd Blanche, and they basically were blanketed with American flags behind them, as if to wrap themselves in the protective mantle of the flag or the trappings of the presidency. But what I saw today was a stripped-down Donald Trump, who has been basically taken the security blanket of the presidency away from him. He only had one lawyer with him and one lawyer in the courtroom. His lawyer, Joe Tacopina, was not present today. And Judge Juan Marchand noted on the record that the issue of whether Tacopina can even represent Trump is still on the table. Why? Because he consulted with Stormy Daniels well before this case ever began, and her lawyers have alleged that presents a conflict of interest for him. And Lisa, did Donald Trump, just looking at that screen, seem to understand, or did he acknowledge, did he nod in agreement, indicating that he understands what the judge was telling him he is not allowed to do with evidence? Well, it's interesting, Joy, because the judge said he was not going to do a line-by-line recitation of the protective order. He said he's never done that in a case before with any other defendant, and he wasn't going to do it here. Instead, what he did was ask a series of questions designed to put on the record that Trump did so understand. He asked Trump if he had a copy of the protective order, and those were the only three words Trump spoke the entire time. Yes, I do. And then he asked Todd Blanche, his lawyer, have you reviewed the terms of this with your client? Does he understand that this is a mandate of the court and that violations can lead to sanctions, including criminal contempt? You need to advise your client of that. And Blanche said, I understand. Joy, one of the things that I also wanted to point out to you was the rare agreement between the judge and the lawyer about something that Trump himself disagrees with, which is Trump has said, He sees this order as a violation of his First Amendment rights. In fact, he went to Truth Social immediately after the hearing today and said as much. But the lawyer and the judge agree that's not the intent of this order. It's not a gag order. It's designed to protect the witnesses, the investigators, and the judge himself from some of the threats that Donald Trump unleashes via social media. Okay, Mary, what if he doesn't what if he doesn't go along? What if he still goes out and blasts out um you know, evidence in this in this case on Truth Social. I think if he violates the protective order, I think you'll see the prosecution uh, bringing that to the attention of the judge. I think you'll see a, he- a hearing, the judge calling him back into court, whether it's in person or remote, and, you know, telling him to show cause why he shouldn't be held in contempt. And held in contempt, what does that mean? Because, you know, I think for Donald Trump, he has lived his entire 77, whatever, however old he is, <laughs> 77 odd years, violating the rules and getting away with it. And nothing really much happens other than a slap on the wrist. What does contempt of court mean? Does it mean jail? Does it mean a fine? It can mean both of those things. It can be civil content. It can be criminal content. And that sometimes does mean jail. Now, I think it's probably unlikely here unless there are multiple instances of contempt, which are certainly possible. I think it's unlikely that you would see on a first contempt this uh, this particular judge sending him to jail. I think he would give him a stern warning, maybe a fine, because he's got to do something more than a warning. That's the whole point of today was to have a warning. Yeah. Um, And I think, you know, I I hear Michael Cohen saying it's just going to be hard for Trump to resist not violating this. And and you know what? And you know why Michael Cohen says that? Because he knows him. But, you know, you don't even have to 
no. Let's just play the yeah. tape. Uh, Donald Trump, this is attacking the DA and the judge after he was arraigned in Manhattan the first time on the 34 felony counts. Here he is. Criminal is the district attorney because he illegally leaked massive amounts of grand jury information. for which he should be prosecuted, or at a minimum, he should resign. I have a Trump-hating judge with a Trump-hating wife and family whose daughter worked for Kamala Harris and now receives money from the Biden-Harris campaign, and a lot of it. Lisa Rubin, he's talking about the judge in the case that you just witnessed today. So was there a sense that this judge, what was his demeanor like? Did he seem fed up? with Trump's antics because he's already in pre-violation in terms of attacking the judge. You know, Joy, it's interesting because the two clips that you just played, they wouldn't put Donald Trump in violation of the protective order. They're certainly offensive. And yes, we could argue that they endanger the judge and his family and Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg and his family. But what the protective order is designed to do is prevent Trump from discussing the evidence in the case, posting that evidence to social media, even disclosing the contents. It's also designed to prevent him from owning his own copies, as you noted in the beginning of the segment of certain types of these documents, but merely criticizing the judge himself or issuing misinformation about the judge and the DA, that's not prohibited here. And the judge was very clear to say this. This is not a gag order. Your client is free to campaign. Your client is free to defend himself. He said your client is free to do almost anything except violate the terms of this (laughs) order. And I will note that the the next hearing, I think, is in December, and then this actual uh, case would go to trial in March of next year Mm -hmm. in the height of the campaign. Let me put what George Conway um, had to say about what he thinks Donald Trump's future is. Take a listen. I mean, Ty Cobb, the White House counsel who handled, in the Trump administration, handled the Mueller investigation, went basically on a national television the other day and said, Trump's going to go to jail for this. And he should and he will, because the the obstruction case is just so strong, as illustrated by the fact that all these lawyers' notes and all these lawyers had to testify. It's so hard to keep them all straight. This is actually on the classified documents case. That's right. Do you agree with George Conway that on the classified documents, obstructing uh, the attempts by the National Archives to get them back, lying over and over again about not having them, Trump is on his way to jail for that? Well, jail is a whole nother question. I think yeah. he's on his way to indictment. I okay. think he will be convicted. Um, I mean, that's a big prediction. I don't usually do that. But the evidence that we've heard and what we've seen Jack Smith doing really does suggest that there's pretty strong evidence of a deliberate attempt to obstruct the investigation. And I feel like Jack Smith seems like he seems like a bad boy. Like he seems like a tough guy. But do you think that the actual attorney general of the United States, Merrick Garland, has it in him to indict Donald Trump? I, th- I think he does. I think he's been made it clear in his public statements that um, accountability is important, not just for the January 6th investigation that Jack Smith is also leading, but for this Mar-a-Lago investigation. He appointed Jack to, ta- to handle both of these. And I don't think he would have even taken that step, honestly, yeah. if he wasn't prepared to go all the way. One last thing, Lisa, um, for you. Um, we know that Donald Trump isn't capable of, of containing himself or restraining himself. E. Jean Carroll is now going back in and saying, uh, no, you know what? We want, I want punitive damages of $10 million because the C- at the CNN town hall, he attacked her again, defamed her again. Uh, what do you make of that? Because that does show to me that he has zero discipline. What do you think her chances are of getting more settlement money? 
I think that the chances of E. Jean Carroll succeeding in a future trial on damages only, Joy, is really strong. Most of the issues in her case have already been decided, and if they haven't been decided, they can be decided quickly based on briefing. Her case, as it stands now, actually pertains to statements Trump made while he was president in 2019, and then extends, as you just noted, to the statement he made on CNN earlier this month, one day after her verdict. She has every right to seek those and to also show this is willful and contumacious behavior. The day after I achieved a jury verdict, there he goes again, telling the same lies he has been telling about me since 2019. She's got a strong case, and I believe that it will continue to proceed in the court. Uh, my last question is to you, uh, Mary McCord. Um, you're going to have a lot of cases with Donald Trump's name on them. Case Trump v. whoever, right? Mm -hmm. And you, you potentially have one in Georgia. You potentially have this Jack Smith investigation on two fronts on, mm -hmm. on January 6th and on documents. And, of course, now you have this local case, mm -hmm. this DA, this, these 34 counts um, in Manhattan. Do you think that, that atmos those atmospherics do give the Department of Justice any pause and the election, the fact that this guy's the front runner, he could be on his way to the nomination next March when all of this is going on. I think that's partly why accountability is important. I think it's going to impact the timing of things, because at least for the federal investigations, sure. the only way to see them through to accountability is to make sure they're finished. The trial yep. is done before the election, because if Donald Trump were to be reelected. And let's be clear, he can run for election while yep. under indictment. That's he right. can even run while convicted. Uh, if he were to win, if, if that trial hadn't been conclude, concluded, I think we can safely assume that would be the end of that case. That would be the end of that case. Mira McCord, Lisa Rubin, uh, fascinating stuff. Thank you both very much. Up next on the readout, the unserious caucus bids on a stick of lip balm once owned by Kevin McCarthy Ugh. as the clock ticks down on a potentially catastrophic debt default. And the Republican chairman leading the investigation of Joe Biden and his family accidentally admits what the real goal is. Congressman Jamie Raskin joins me next. The readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. As the United States teeters on the edge of defaulting on its debt, Republicans are holding firm to demands to gut programs for the poor and working families, and they're wasting time, literally. On Monday, House Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer said the quiet part out loud about his pointless investigation into the Biden family, which found nothing. So do you think that because of your investigation, that is what's moved this needle with the media? Absolutely. Absolutely. There's no question. You look at the polling and 
Right now, Donald Trump is seven points ahead of Joe Biden and trending upward. Joe Biden's trending downward. Well, if that sounds familiar. Here's the then Republican House Majority Leader justifying the Benghazi investigation in 2015. Everybody thought Hillary Clinton was unbeatable, right? But we put together a Benghazi special committee, a select committee. What are her numbers today? Her numbers are dropping. Genius. That off-script revelation cost Kevin McCarthy a shot at becoming speaker in 2015. But now that he's got the gavel after 15 votes, he's doing his best to placate his caucus's fringe over the debt limit. Matt Gates told Semaphore that a new House rule allowing one member to force McCarthy out as speaker has given MAGA Republicans the best version of Kevin in negotiations, adding that MAGA conservatives reject compromise with the White House because, quote, they don't feel like we should negotiate with our hostage, unquote. And while Republicans claim that the White House is not showing enough urgency about negotiations, the Republicans who run Kevin are literally wasting your time, goofing off in their caucus meeting, playing games like holding 100,000 auctions for used lip balm, which is actually disgusting, and trolling on Twitter like they have all the time in the world. Because they actually don't care about the deficit or the debt, y'all. The only things that these MAGA trolls care about are kicking low-paid working-class people for fun, sucking up to Donald Trump, and just like Matt Gates said out loud, holding America hostage. I'm joined now by Maryland Democratic Congressman Jamie Raskin, the ranking member on the Oversight Committee. He was a member of the Select Committee to investigate January 6th. Always good to speak with you, uh, Congressman Raskin. I have to tell you, the joking and trolling and the lip balm disgusting auction actually really infuriated me today as a story. And I'll tell you why. Let me just put up this little full screen. These are the debt payments that are at risk starting June 1st. $10 billion in military pay and retirement pay for our veterans. We're right before Memorial Day. $47 billion in payments to Medicare providers. $25 billion in Social Security benefits for our seniors. $1 billion in SNAP food aid benefits that help kids eat. $6 billion in Medicare reimbursements to states. $1 billion in individual tax refunds for people who filed their taxes. $6 billion in Medicaid reimbursements to states. And $5 billion in Medicaid reimbursements to states, plus $5 $5 billion in federal salaries for people who work, unlike Marjorie Green and Matt Gates. I, I wonder how you feel having to serve in a House of Representatives where this is the dynamic. Well, it's a totally cavalier, madcap environment among the Republicans. Um, it's like they're all playing the fool on the Titanic while they try to crash the ship. Um, you know, they would really bring down the entire economy of the United States and plunge us into recession with seven or eight million um, jobs lost um, without batting an eye, uh, just to prove their point that they want to try to dismantle the social programs that pe- millions of people across the country depend on. So it's a scary situation to see how deranged it's gotten, but it's the price of allowing them to believe in lies and to totally deaden themselves to what the truth is and what facts are and what human compassion is supposed to be all about. So I do think it's a frightening situation. Fortunately, we've got the Constitution on our side, and the 14th Amendment says that the validity of the public debt shall not be questioned, which to my mind means that 
forced to the edge by these mega extremists, the president has no other choice but to respect the laws of the country and pay our bills to the Social Security recipients, the Medicare recipients, veterans and the bondholders of the country. And we've got to respect all those laws and the Constitution. And one law about a debt ceiling cannot override the Constitution of the United States and every other law. Well, you are a constitutional expert. Uh, Thankfully, we have a constitutional scholar uh, here in you to talk about this with, because the arguments that I've read against it, I read a a piece in, I think, in the Washington Post that said that you can't do it this way because you'd end up in a litigation. You'd end up in a a court case about whether or not it was valid for the president to go ahead and pay these bills. And while that happened, you couldn't go ahead and make the payments. And then you'd end up in this Supreme Court where Samuel Alito would say that in 1735, slave owners didn't agree. Therefore, you can't pay Social Security people and screw them. So uh, do you fear that? Yeah. Um, No, because elections have consequences. And one consequence of our having won the presidency is that President Biden doesn't have to go and sue anybody. Uh, We're playing defense. All he has to do is faithfully execute the laws, as he's sworn to do under Article 2 of the Constitution, and respect the full faith and credit of the United States by not dishonoring the debts that we've already incurred. In other words, he's just got to pay the bills. And then if Marjorie Taylor Greene or Matt Gates, if they want to go to court, they've got to prove first why they have standing. How are they injured by other people getting their bills paid? And Hmm. even if they're somehow able to overcome that, this is a political question for the political branches to work out. And even if they're able to overcome that, well, then they've got to prove somehow that their rights have been violated because other people got their bills paid. And what's their remedy for that? They're suing the Social Security recipients to tell them to return their money to the U.S. government. They're suing the bondholders of America to tell them to return their money that's rightfully theirs to the U.S. government? I don't think so. So I know this is an extremist Supreme Court, but I don't think they're willing to further drive the government of the United States into a ditch with the mega extremists. In any event, we can't allow them to intimidate those of us who want to follow the law in the clear meaning and sense of the Constitution. We don't repudiate the debts of the United States. That is a fascinating argument. Have you had that conversation with the White House? I, yes, I've been talking to everybody about this. Um, professor Tribe, um, who is, you know, my constitutional law professor, who I've been in dialogue with about this for many weeks. He's been writing about it publicly, and he's been talking to the White House, as have I and other members. And so, um, all, you know, all I'm saying is that in the final analysis, we cannot allow them to drive America over yeah. the ledge because they're entertaining this Trumpian political fantasy. I mean, Trump is the one telling them, go ahead and do it. Why? Because he's all about chaos and promoting chaos in the country. Right. And also telling them do fake investigations of Biden because he wants to scar, you know, dirty up Biden. Um, plan B, of course, is this discharge petition that you could essentially, if you could get five or so Republicans to go along with it. Do you believe that there are five Republicans for this option to force a vote on a clean debt limit increase? Well, at this point, there clearly are not. I mean, I stood in line with everybody else to sign that discharge petition last Friday. Um, 
and there were no Republicans in line then, it may be as we careen closer to the edge that some of the um, Republicans from Biden districts will be able to read the writing on the wall. Um, there is going to be electoral hell to pay for Republicans who play into this mega strategy. I mean, this is much worse, you know, than a government shutdown, Joy. Um, I mean, we're talking about millions of jobs lost, crashing the stock market and plunging us into a recession. And will the American full faith and credit in the eyes of the world ever recover from what they want to do to us? And I know Chaos is a great strategy for an authoritarian or fascist political party, but it's a terrible strategy for a party that wants to appeal to people in a democracy. Absolutely. And they'll, they'll hurt their own voters. And the thing is, they'll they'll assume that their voters will be paying more attention to the fake investigations of Biden than the fact that they didn't get their check. Right. Which is an, an, a wild idea, but it literally could happen. I do want to ask you about an incident that happened today that was actually fairly scary, um, where you had somebody sort of crash a, a car uh, in D.C. There was, you know, overnight, sorry, that um, had swastikas displayed. There is so much more anti-Semitism visibly that's happening and extremism that, to be blunt, the people on the other side of the aisle from you are not dissuading with their rhetoric. Are you concerned that we have sort of gone beyond the pale here where we can't pull back on the kind of extremism that's being promoted on the other side of the aisle? Well, we know that the propaganda and disinformation that have been uh, unleashed in America by Donald Trump and around the world by Vladimir Putin and Viktor Orban and other authoritarians um, have activated extremists and unstable people all over the world. Um, and that's a frightening situation. Um, but, you know, we have to continue to act with courage, understanding that the vast majority of the people reject the racism, reject the anti-Semitism, reject the immigrant bashing, and reject authoritarianism. Uh, but, uh, Joy, alas, we're still in the thick of this fight. We thought it might be over if we'd had 10 more senators in um, the Senate vote to convict Donald Trump. It might have been yeah. over. It still could be over with some of the criminal prosecutions. But at this point, we need every Democratic patriot in America on the front lines of fighting for freedom. Uh, and I am out of time, but very quickly, are you going to try to become one of those United States senators? You run for Senate, sir? I know there's an opening in the state of Maryland. You will be the first to know, Joy. I will let you know. But I still haven't decided. And uh, okay. I'm wrestling with it. I, and I welcome everybody's uh, input and people are giving me great advice. Well, we are very glad that you got a clean bill of health uh, so that if you were to run, you would be running with that uh, in your favor. Thank you so much, Congressman Jamie Raskin, at least Congressman at this moment. Jamie Raskin, thank you very much. Um, still ahead, history is written by the victors or, in Ron DeSantis's case, rewritten using cherry-picked facts and figures to support his own authoritarian ideas about how American history should be remembered. And we'll be right back. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. 
It's Monday night. It's Monday, everyone. We're happy to have you here on this Monday night. Lots of news to get to tonight. Make more of your Mondays on MSNBC with Jen Psaki and Rachel Maddow back to back. If you were talking to a voter, what would you say to them about why this case matters to them? Was this the kind of proceeding you would expect in a typical New York DA's case, or does this really feel different? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by The Rachel Maddow Show at 9, Mondays on MSNBC. Monday night. For nearly a decade, it has been enshrined in Florida state law that every year three people are to be added to the Florida Civil Rights Hall of Fame to honor them for their contributions in the fight for justice and equality. The Commission on Human Relations recommends up to 10 people, from which the governor selects three. Their names and portraits are hung in the entrance to the state capitol. But this hasn't happened since 2019, which just by chance was also Governor Ron DeSantis's first year in office. And last week, religious leaders and local officials gathered to ask why. According to one official with the commission, the reason for the holdup was COVID, which is weird, right? Considering the Florida governor's blatant opposition to every other pandemic safety measure. I mean, that was literally what built his brand. The commissioners say that they're still awaiting the governor's selection of nominees, which I wouldn't expect anytime soon, considering his current priorities include announcing his presidential run during a convo with Twitter's chief troll and CEO Elon Musk. Now, I know it may be surprising since he doesn't allow it to be taught in Florida schools, but Ron DeSantis was actually a history teacher back in the day in Georgia. I mean, one of his students said that he taught the Civil War in a way that seemed like an attempt to justify slavery, but he did teach it. And believe it or not, he's also written a history book. Back in 2011, before his political career took off, DeSantis penned Dreams from Our Founding Fathers, First Principles in the Age of Obama. The book has since been almost completely scrubbed from the internet. There is currently literally one copy available on Amazon for just under two grand. But according to the Washington Post, Gillian Brockwell, who was able to obtain a digital copy before it, poof, disappeared. The book is exactly what you'd expect from Ron DeSantis an ahistorical mess, best summarized as founders good, Obama bad. <laughs> Joining me now is Gillian Brockwell, staff writer for the Washington Post history blog, Retropolis. What a great name. And I enjoyed your article, Gillian, more than a lot of stuff I've read recently. It was a lot of fun. Please explain <laughs> to me this very hard to find book that apparently the publisher pulled off of their, their online roster. Yeah, I actually don't know what happened. Um, with the book, uh, because I, the publisher won't call me back. I, I emailed and called and they haven't told me exactly why it disappeared, but I do know that I bought it last summer thinking, Oh, this might be fun. I cover history on my beat. His profile was, you know, rising. So, so I purchased it. And then when it was clear he was going to run for president, I read it, which I'm glad you enjoyed reading my article. It was uh, it, it was not very fun reading the book, <laughs> but, uh, but I, I'm glad you enjoyed it. And, uh, yeah, some, sometime between, before he, uh, released his, you know, campaign book, that's not a campaign book, uh, this, this, uh, winter, the book disappeared. His first book disappeared <laughs> from the internet. Um, you know, it's not the courage to be free, but, uh, you know, uh, so this is my, one of my favorite stories in your book. And this is what you wrote. DeSantis quotes James Madison at Virginia's 1829 mm. Constitutional Convention, saying he advised the delegates uh, that these natural rights can 
cannot be separated. The personal right to acquire property, which is a natural right, gives to property when acquired a right to protection, a social right. Um, but he left out the part that the property he meant was people. <laughs> The property he made was people, slaves. Yeah, I mean, it was two paragraphs later in the part that in the speech that he quotes from uh, that that Madison makes it very plain that he is talking about enslaved African-Americans. And he's saying that in this state constitutional convention that he doesn't want white men who don't own property to be able to vote because they could tax slavery into, you know, being unprofitable for him and other enslavers. Uh, So, you know, uh, DeSantis is using that quote in his book to say that, uh, you know, uh, the founders would have hated the individual mandate in the Affordable Care Act. That's not what Madison was talking about. He all he, the only two black people that seem to appear in his book are Obama, who bad, bad, Obama, bad, Obama, bad. Uh, and also mm-hmm. Dr. King, who gets the usual yeah. same quote that all the Republicans use. Uh, talk a little bit about this footnote um, from I Have a Dream, uh, where he got it. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I think it's a pretty standard thing to give sort of, um, you know, milk toast uh, quotes from King so that. Uh, You know, of course, everyone does it once a year on their Twitter, which Bernice King is always saying, this is not what my my father supported, etc. Anyway, um, so he used this this brief quote about uh, uh, from King in the I Have a Dream speech, saying that the Constitution was magnificent words and that it was a promissory (laughs) note to to future Americans. And, uh, you know, I mean, I have to say. Most politicians who write about history are not using footnotes, do not have coherent arguments, are, you know, terrible. And he had footnotes and his arguments were coherent, even if they were completely taken out of context and, you know, cherry picking and ahistorical. So there's that. Anyway, his footnote for King is the Yale Book of Quotations. It's not the (laughs) I Have a Dream speech where it came from. And I, I don't mean to diss books of quotations. I think they're great. They're wonderful for what they are. That's not doing history. Books of quotations is not doing history. And what Dr. King was trying to say uh, is that the beautiful words in the Constitution are not being applied to Black people. Right. (laughs) Like, he leaves all that out. What, and my last question here, slavery is something he has really seemed to try to justify. Does he do that in the book as well? Yeah, I mean, so in the intro, he kind of uh, confronts slavery head on because you have to if you're talking about the founding fathers. But it's just for a couple paragraphs to say, you know, like, and this is why I'm not going to mention slavery in the rest of the book, you know. And, uh, you know, his his justifications, he calls it a personal flaw of some of the founders. Personal flaw. uh, Which is... Maybe a little bit of minimizing. I'll leave that to anyone's interpretation. Um, But he also says, you know, this is a common thing that I hear a lot is that slavery was happening throughout human history. And, you know, it's this variation on this argument of like, people didn't know it was wrong back then. They didn't know. Which, first of all, isn't true. Plenty of people did. The enslaved people themselves being the most important. And abolitionists. And then, yes. And then the last thing is is that... um, uh, yeah, the enslaved people themselves are the yeah. most important people to have said 
you know, that, 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 that it's wrong. this and, was wrong. And the fact that you point out, as you point out in your article, uh, a congenital slavery based on race, that was invented here in America. That was not going on right. anywhere else on earth ever, just right. here. And his buddy Madison was one of the people profiting from it. Gillian, uh, Gillian of right. Raquel, thank you very much. Uh, much appreciated. Really enjoyed your article. Coming up next, the ugly, heart-wrenching truth behind conservative claims that their anti-woke, anti-abortion agenda is all about helping women and children. Stay right there. Republicans are obsessively enacting anti-trans legislation nationwide. And when they do it, they almost exclusively frame it as a women's rights issue. Bathroom bills are touted as protecting women's privacy and ensuring women are safe from the fake danger of trans women in public bathrooms. Banning drag shows is about protecting decency and decorum, especially when children are around. The bills banning trans youth from playing sports are sold under the guise of saving women's athletics from unfair physical competition. It's about fairness, they say. Let's unpack this rhetoric for a bit, shall we? The Republicans who push anti-trans legislation love to pretend women's rights are a priority for them. They're not. They're simply dressing up transphobia as feminism. If women's privacy, safety, and dignity were a priority for Republicans, why are these same Republicans in these same states obstructing life-saving abortion care, forcing their ways into sensitive patient-physician relationships, and criminalizing bathroom access based on how both trans and cis women look? You have Texas Republicans howling over fairness in women's sports, yet its anti-abortion laws are so dangerous for women, 15 plaintiffs are suing the state, saying its abortion bans physically harmed them. And then you have Kansas, which knows a thing or two about women's rights. Remember last year, the red state's voters defeated a constitutional amendment that would have stripped residents of abortion rights. Yet Kansas freedoms do not extend to trans women. The state now has some of the nation's strictest anti-trans laws, deceptively called the Women's Bill of Rights. Which brings us to Mississippi, where Governor Tate Reeves signed a bill barring trans competition in women's sports, saying the legislation was needed to protect Mississippi girls. He couldn't sign an example of girls needing protection from trans athletes, but you know what? There are plenty of examples of women dying during pregnancy, which is mandatory in the state under its abortion ban. The maternal death rate in Mississippi is among the highest in the nation. The state's House Speaker even once said it is his personal belief that if a 12-year-old girl is a victim of incest, she should still be forced to carry the resulting pregnancy to term. The anti-trans right likes to garnish its hatred with buzz phrases like parental rights and protecting women and children. But we know how they really feel about women and girls by the laws that they enact and how they really talk behind closed doors. Our next guest got inside a secretive anti-trans dinner hosted by the San Francisco Republican Party. What they saw and heard, that's next. Over a week ago, Solel Ho, an opinion columnist and cultural critic for the San Francisco Chronicle, walked into a parental rights night event hosted by San Francisco Republicans. What Soleil saw was so horrifying, mean, and vile, they went straight home and threw up. The event was billed as an attempt at, quote, detangling the transgender narrative surrounding our children, unquote, and was filled with gross attacks and misinformation. Speakers claim that gender affirmation, which is basically just acknowledging what a child is telling you they're feeling inside, is a cloaked system of eugenics. They accused parents of allowing their kids to be sterilized and insisted that most of these kids have mental illness. 
An emailed invite for the dinner included a guest list with a person they described as a detransitioner. Alongside the San Mateo County chair for the right-wing groups Moms for Liberty and Moms for America. Also, there was someone there from Our Duty, which argues that transgender children are the way they are because they have been groomed and brainwashed into a belief system. The event was held under the guise of promoting parental rights and helping parents advocate for your child, apparently at the expense of your child. I'm joined now by Soleil Ho, opinion writer and cultural critic for the San Francisco Chronicle. I read a little bit of uh, what you experienced there. Tell me um, what some of the rest was. Yeah, um, there are some really great slideshows about the um, identifying wokeness in your school library. Um, That was the topic of the speaker from Moms for Liberty, which, you know, not surprising. Um, There were some videos being shown on those big TV screens behind the bar that usually see like football on. Um, They were playing sort of TikToks and other sorts of amateur videos by people who were gender nonconforming. And there was a lot of noise in the crowd in response to that. Um, It told me a lot about how um, a lot of these politics are motivated by a sort of visceral disgust for people who are not gender conforming. That's, I mean, to me, that was why I wanted to go just to hear and feel just, you know, was it going to be a calm crowd? Was it going to be a raucous crowd? Just how were they going to react in the moment to images and discussions about people who are trans? Let me, I want to read you something really quickly. This is the, the the Bay Area reporter wrote a piece sort of previewing what this event was going to be about. And this is, they quote some, um, a Republican, chairman of the local Republican party said, we feel like there's something happening now that has increased the number of trans kids, especially in the teenage years and needs to be addressed. It feels to many like there's an an ideology associated with it. And that's what we're exploring. But that's the fear that I feel like I'm hearing expressed by people on the right, that somehow something culturally that's happening in schools is tricking children into thinking they're trans. Is that the kind of thing they were alleging? Yeah. Um, Basically just saying that there are books in the libraries, for instance, uh, that were grooming kids, that there are teachers who were visibly LGBT and they were grooming kids just by existing, Um, just that there were sex education courses that were just offering alternative identities just as just the fact that they existed um, being part of the programming and part of this brainwashing conspiracy by Marxist transgenders who are hoping to, again, um, sterilize and eliminate children who were vulnerable. It's it's a strange thing that does feel like a panic, right? So you had this thing happen even outside of this. Like, so Major League Baseball got into this whole back and forth with the Christian right about inviting the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, or a drag group. You're a cultural critic. You you monitor this stuff. Have you seen just a marked increase in the hysteria around things like drag that is that does feel like it's tied to the trans panic? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, trans panic is just the easiest. I don't easiest sounds so glib, but it is one of the easier entrees into this bigger, more general sense of repulsion toward people who are queer. Um, it makes sense to me because it is just the most vulnerable group within the LGBT sort of system and the most easy to beat up on. Um, it's essentially priming people to 
more easily transpose that feeling of hate onto people who, you know, are generally more accepted um, in that spectrum. So, yeah, it. I mean, I've been watching what's been happening in the UK for years now, and this is just all according to the same playbook. So it's not just in the U.S. This is happening outside of the U.S. on the right more broadly. Yes, absolutely. It's really frightening. So one like good little piece of news that Vice News reported, trans kids actually threw themselves a prom. 150 trans children and adults from 16 states gathered in front of the Capitol in Washington, D.C. to attend a prom to celebrate trans kids. Do these kind of counter events, do you think, do they help to, you know, the visible shows of support? Because that's what seems to be needed. And I have very little time. So. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I think it helps people just not feel alone. I mean, trans individuals just around the world have the highest rates of suicide um, in the LGBT community. And yeah, yeah, yeah. You just feel so lost otherwise. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for going undercover and getting us that amazing story. Solejo, thank you very much. That is tonight's readout. Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow.